Hi, thanks for joining us for this message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. We pray that you are blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Red Church and its ministries, or if you'd like to support us financially, you can find out more by heading to redchurch.org.au. We are in the midst of a series called Platforms to Pillars. And this series is doing two things. Number one, it is looking at the way in which our culture has become one which is shaped by platforms. We've looked at different platforms, the dais in which the king used to stand on, but in a sense, our whole culture treats us as kings and queens. Our individual desires should be put before everything else. We looked at the podium, the podium, the idea, another raised platform that the answers in the world can be found through putting out the right information, listening to the right voices, or perhaps putting your content out there. Better information will make the world a better place. One of the great myths of our world today. We look last week at the stage, this sense that increasingly our culture has been driven by this performance. So people perform as in front of a a camera, but at the same time, we feel this pressure of having to perform up to a particular level and the price that that pays for us. And we've got more platforms to come, but today we're also going to look at the book of Exodus because the story of Exodus is the story of God taking a significant amount of people. The Greek word exodos, which Exodus comes from, is about a significant group of people going on a significant journey. And in a sense, as a culture, we've been in a reverse exodus where we've been a significant amount of people who've been going a significant journey towards becoming a platform society. So what I'm going to talk about today, we've got a couple more platforms coming in the next few weeks, but what I talk about today is the way that our entire culture has become a platform society. Now, there is no ancient world parallel that I can go back to. I did the end of the weeks, dais, podium, stage, all from ancient Greece. But today, I'm going to talk about something far more contemporary, and that's that our lives are dominated by these big platforms now. But we're going to tell the story of Exodus. We're reading through it, and I'm going to try and pull something up. So pray for me. I'm going to talk about how our culture has turned into a giant platform society. I'm going to try and explain that so you understand, because it's complex. Man, I've been reading academic books like this week, like the Platform Society by a bunch of Dutch scholars, like translating to English. It's hard. Like seriously, this is stuff I'm doing for you. I literally read a book on Platform Society in India. I'm doing this for you. Please, please, come on. This is painful, painful reading. Come on. Like academic deep books, like seriously. So I'm going to try and explain the Platform Society to you, but I'm also going to then preach out of, because this is where we're up to in Exodus, one of the strangest passages like Exodus 4, you're about to hear it, like it's, it's weird. And I've got to take truth out of this for you. But once we dig in, there's truth in there. So, oh, come on, man, I'm not feeling the support. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Here we go, Exodus 4, verse 1. Moses answered, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. Okay, what on earth is going on here? Moses has encountered the presence of God in the wilderness. He's grown up in privilege, this Hebrew kid who's then been adopted, grown up with Egyptian privilege. He escapes after killing an Egyptian overseer who's oppressing one of his, his fellow Hebrews. And he finds himself in this place, Midian, 
And in Midian, they think he's an Egyptian. This is how shaped by Egyptian culture he is. But he's then called by God to partner with God to become a pillar in God's plan because the shift that I'm talking about in this series is from a platform society to a kind of way of looking at your life which is to be a pillar for God. A pillar creates space for others to move. A pillar is a source of strength. It's support. And God is using him as a pillar in his plan. So then he goes before God, like, how am I going to pull this thing off? And this is the point we're at. So he has a staff in his hand. Note the staff. It's really important. And the Lord says, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. Again, snakes, if you understand your Bible, you'll see snakes have a theme. Think about where a snake first appears. Verse 4, Then the Lord said to him, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This said the Lord is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Right. Moses throws the staff on the ground. It turns into a snake. God asks him to pick it up again, and this is a key sign. All right, pause that. All right, so what I want to do is I want to talk about really quickly how we as a society have gone from just platforms being symbols to actually almost our entire society being shaped around platforms. Now, to do this, I have to go on a little bit of a history lesson. I'm going to do this really quick. And I want to go back to the beginning of the modern world, And in many ways, this is a world where people all of a sudden started experiencing some of the things that we take for granted, a sense of you can move and do what you want to do. You have a sense of personal freedom. Before this, people were defined by where they were born. They were born into what was called this great chain of being. And the whole of medieval society was based around people not having a bunch of meaning, um, sorry, movement, not having a bunch of personal freedom. You weren't going to be able to reinvent your life and everything was very much determined for you. But then the modern world begins and people start moving out of that structure of society and all of a sudden they start having all these new freedoms and mobilities. And this is called the first individualism. This is when individualism really starts to kick off. And in a sense, your identity before was just given to you, but now your identity wasn't really where you were from, it was actually what you produced. People moved from the countryside to the cities and people started to describe themselves. This is still a bit of a little remnant of this today when you meet someone at a party. Hey, hi, what's your name? What do you do? And often people would talk about what they produce. And back then, people were stonemasons or carpenters. They worked in factories. And this actually had a lot of movement. People could in, sort of, in a sense, reinvent themselves. But there's a downside to this. That whilst their freedom was increased, they had a loss of some connection. There was loneliness, social disconnection. So what people began to do, and you see this change happen, this is around the 1600s, is that people begin to create new ways of connecting with other people. They create things like coffee houses, which we take for granted now as something which has perhaps sort of always been there, that all of a sudden in London, there was just all these coffee houses that took off everywhere and people would regularly go to them. And this is a new way of finding connection to other people. They created things like benevolent associations. You might have your insurance with a group that possibly has its roots back in this time when people got together to look after each other if someone passed away, that they could then pay for their funeral. You saw all kinds of new sort of 
quasi-social religious groups like Masonic lodges. There were voluntary associations come together. Science begins at this time with a group called the Royal Society who decided to just hang out and talk about the scientific method. And so all across society, in the middle of the week, if you were to say walk around a city like London, you'd find all these groups meeting. No one had to be part of these groups. They chose to be. And in them, they found a sense of meaning and they found a sense of community. This is like the technical word for this is mediating institutions. There's the very big, the state, and then there's you, the individual. And these were ways of connecting other people. Like mediating means going in between. Now, what was the effect on church in this move? The church adapted at this time, and so many things that you take for granted, the fact that you can choose which denomination you're going to go to, the fact that you could meet in a huddle or a discipleship group during the week, that you could go to the prayer course. This whole way of looking at the world that we take for granted, that on Tuesday you can rock up to something and a bunch of people will be praying, this really is birthed in this period. And people like John Wesley created these discipleship structures, and this was actually brilliant for the churches. When we talk about the great awakenings that happened in the 18th century, it was because the Holy Spirit was poured out, people went and preached, and people heard the gospel in a very religious society that they'd forgotten the essence of the gospel. But at the same time, people then created small groups and midweek meetings and, and they had like justice initiatives and mission groups and so many of the organizations that even some of the people in this room who may work for as Christian organizations, many of them actually have their roots in this period. And so in a sense, we have the rise of this first individualism, but actually it becomes beneficial for the church and many churches grow. This is, goes for some time, like 1600s, possibly into the 20th century. One thing I notice is really weird that we take for granted as I've traveled is the fact that so many Aussie churches, your classic suburban Aussie church that's been around since the 1950s or 60s, they all have basketball courts. Does anyone know? They've all got halls. And heaps of them have got tennis courts. And you go overseas and you're like in a church and you walk around like, where's the tennis court or the basketball court? They're like, what are you talking about? It's a very interesting thing because in the beginning of the 20th century after World War II, that's like the churches were part of those mediating institutions. People didn't just like worship there, but they had like sport and they had basketball and all these things. It was the gathering point of the society in many ways. But then probably in the last 30 years, and we've been talking about the changes over the last 30 years, we moved into a second individualism. And this was pushing deeper into freedom. No longer freedom was about freedom from being defined by where you were from or your job, but it became a freedom to do, to do what you want, to recreate yourself. And your identity no longer came from what you produce, but it came from your sense of self-creation, your self-expression. And instead of what you produced, it actually was about what you consumed. You see youth subcultures, you see people begin to define themselves very differently, no longer by the group, but actually by their individual tastes. And what's interesting about this period is what defines people is they begin to flee the mediating institutions. The church begins to decline in this point, but so does everything else. The benevolent societies, the voluntary societies, the Masonic lodges, they all begin to rotary. They all begin to lose people because they're too restrictive. The commitment that is required to build and maintain these associations requires discipline and commitment, which limit the ability of people to work on the project of self. 
And what's the effect of, on faith? It's, it's really hard. It's hard for churches. They see people less committed. It's harder to build discipleship structures. It's harder to build missions, missions out into the world. It's harder to do initiatives. Because in a sense, people put their individual wants before the communal wants. And the churches that do do well in this period tend to reinvent themselves to serve the individual in their personal life project, becoming more entertaining. And people in this period begin to lose the ability to walk into a communal life. And this has a big downside. There's this sense of a lack of meaning, not just a lack of connection, but a lack of meaning. People are constantly having to reinvent themselves. There's greater disconnection. And a sense of self-esteem where you're told you're good, but it's disconnected from anything you do, so it sort of feels fake and weird. So that's a history I've just given you of 1600 to like 2016. And this is what sociologists have been talking about. There's sort of two moves. But I think we're now moving into something new. And with people moving away from these institutions where they found a sense of meaning, as people constantly having to reinvent themselves, it leaves these big gaps with people less able to communally connect with other people, into the breach has come something to solve this problem. The disconnection that people feel, the pain that people feel of the disconnection, the lack of meaning, the fact that people find it harder to connect to other people. And into this has come a new kind of platform. It's not the podium, it's not the stage, it's not the dais, it's digital platforms. The gigantic companies that have come into the world, which go past those connection points. No longer do you have to ring someone on the taxi line and book a taxi for tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. to take you to the airport. No longer do you actually have to get into a community to meet people and try and build up connections. You can go onto an app to date someone. No longer do you have to go down to the store to actually buy the food and talk to the the waiter and, and have the order and build up a connection. You can just press a button, it comes to your door. And in these digital platforms, they offer us cheap services delivered to our doors, downloaded onto our devices while being squarely aimed at our desires. And the distance between delaying gratification and getting what you want has rapidly shrunk. And this is now reshaping, as the three Dutch guys that I read, whose names I've completely forgotten, said, the, the platform society is reshaping our society at every level. And what this has done to our identity is that it's become more fragmented. It's constantly shifting. And instead of just like defining ourselves by what we produce in the first individual and the second one, what we consume, now it's not even about that. It's really we're just farmed for our emotions and desires, our clicks to feed the algorithms. And the downside is that there's increasing, rapid, accelerating social disconnection. I talked about this last week. The figures coming across the world for loneliness are everywhere. It's phenomenal. We've seen the rise of widespread mental health, the platforming of self, a widespread and growing personal dysfunctionality in relationships, the workplace, churches. And we're seeing the fact that as a culture, we are about to hit an incredible demographic decline. I saw the stats this week just coming for Gen Z. The majority of Gen Z do not want to have children. And the reason they're asked, I thought it was going to be like the environment or something, but actually the answer was to have children would limit my ability to work and work on myself and spend time on myself. And you chuck in there the other external challenges that are happening from a cost of living crisis to the reappearance of war, environment, etc. What it means is 
in this third individualism, which I'm going to call crisis individualism, that actually we're moving from mediating institutions to what platforms are doing are becoming medicating institutions. You've probably heard the term when people talk about people with addictions, where they say you're self-medicating, where perhaps someone hides their pain through alcohol or food or credit cards or whatever and medicate the pain away. What we have now is a society set up to profit from actually medicating you. So we've gone from a self-medication in the second individualism to the third individualism is just built on these medicating institutions. This is much of our platform society provides. Now this is all happening, and there's a famous article that Derek Thompson wrote in The Atlantic, uh, I think it was about 12 months ago, 18 months ago, where he said, this is all happening, and what people don't realize is almost all of these platforms are running at a loss. They're built in this time where people could just borrow money at low interest rates, and many of them are going to go broke, but the fact that they're running at a loss is making everything cheap. And all of a sudden, what we realize is the party is over. And you can live on debt as our culture has in the platform society, but at some stage, the debt collector turns up. And so where we find ourselves is exploited. We are like Israel in Egypt. I'm not going to compare it to being whipped by, 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 by these overseers or having to build stuff in, in brutal work. But in a sense, there is some parallel in that in Hebrew, Egypt was called Mitzrayim which in Hebrew has these words of like narrowness, bound, binded, tied up, restricted, hemmed in. And the effect on faith has been really difficult. People want to connect, but they find themselves more difficult. Most of the churches I know are now struggling with the reality that people are increasingly dysfunctional. They don't know how to do communal life. They want to come, but they're not being shaped how to live in those mediating institutions. At the same time, you're seeing people in the culture questioning. The big narratives and myths of our culture actually are being questioned, and all of a sudden there's an openness. The conversations that I'm having and hearing from our congregation that people are having with others who have been switched off from faith for most of their lives, there is possibly one of the biggest evangelistic opportunities we're living through right now. But there's a big if. As the big if is, how do we in this platform society, this Mitzrayim, this hemmed in place, how do we respond as the people of God? How do we allow God to build us into pillars, the kind of pillars in which God can create space and his spirit move and God do something new in this time? Well, to understand that, we've got to get past one way that the platform society has shaped us. Because what the platform society does is it doesn't trap you with the overseers and the whips like Egypt did. It actually traps you in pleasure. Whilst the viability of much of our platform society is now in question, the mythology remains deep in our minds. And that mythology says good stuff comes cheap. That our desires can be met instantaneously without any effort. And that an easy, comfortable, pleasurable life is normal and to be expected. Mark Fisher says of this tendency, he says, it's not constituted by an inability to get pleasure so much as it is by an inability to do anything except pursue pleasure. There's a sense that something is missing, which you see in society, lots of people think something's missing, but no appreciation that this mysterious missing enjoyment can only be accessed beyond pleasure. 
So what this does is it leads us to believe that if something is difficult, be it a conversation, a relationship, a job, it must be bad. And so if it must be bad, we walk away, we avoid the difficult. And by walking away and avoiding the difficult, we actually limit our potential for growth. We prevent a deepening of our faith. So how do we break out of Mitzrayim? How do we avoid this? How do we take advantage of the incredible opportunity that I think is before the church, perhaps once in a life? Well, let's return to Moses and the snake. Moses comes before God. And he says, what if they don't believe me or listen to me? Moses sees that there is an opportunity God has called him to. He's afraid that they're not going to believe the fact that the presence of God appeared to him in the wilderness. And the Lord says to him, what's in that in your hand? A staff, he replies. The Lord says, throw it on the ground. Moses throws it on the ground. It becomes a snake and he runs from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand, take it by the tail. So Moses reached and took the hand, hold of the snake and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This said the Lord is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, Abraham, God of, sorry, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob has appeared to you. First thing I want to focus on is the snake. The snake is really key. Biblical scholar Alan Moitner says this of the symbolism of the snake for ancient Egypt. The kings of Egypt wore crowns adorned with uraeus, a cobra with a raised hood, which threatened Egypt's enemies. The cobra's crown was also associated with the sun god Re, the most powerful deity in Egypt. And victory over the serpent was therefore a comprehensive motive for challenging and overthrowing the central realities of Egyptian religion and sovereignty. So they pick up this staff transformed into a stake was a very big deal. This was a direct confrontation with the power of the order, which was keeping the Israelites bound and exploited. This wasn't just like a, ooh, I'm a scared of snakes moment. So how do you defeat a serpent? Moitner continues. He says, by taking the serpent by the tail may well have been the bravest thing Moses had ever done. Not only was overcoming his natural terror, but he was taking the most dangerous of all actions and making himself vulnerable to the danger he felt. For seizing the tail left the deadly head of the creature free to strike. And this tells us something key about how God grows us into the kind of deep and resilient faith that pillars have. Number one, what this says is contrary to what our society says, growth is discovered in difficulty. Growth is discovered in difficulty. James chapter 1 verses 2 to 4 says this. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, let perseverance finish its work, so you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Testing, difficulty, seasons of hardship. When you don't get what you want, when your desires are not met, when you're disappointed, when it's really hard, that's testing. And what James is telling us is that perseverance is built out of those moments and that that testing is linked to perseverance, which is linked to maturity and completeness. For in moments of great challenge and difficulty, there is deep revelation to be discovered. Some of the biggest spiritual revelations I have heard in recent times have come from Trudy. As she shared with me just in the morning as 
She's reflecting on what it feels like where you literally have to thank God for every moment. I don't want to reveal them all now because I'd love Trudy to share them at some stage. But what I've discovered is if this had not happened, those revelations may not have come. The greatest spiritual lessons are found in challenging moments. They're to be mined in the hard places, in a difficult moment in a relationship, in a difficult moment at work, in a difficult moment at church. That's where the kind of deep spiritual growth that builds pillars happens. But we're in a weird moment because I think of this pleasure concept, this that difficulty is bad. I recently caught up um, with a bunch of different pastors um, I had not seen since the beginnings of COVID and um, just before COVID. And I was like, hey, how's everything going? Every single one of them talked about the fact of the fact that people were just disappearing. One of the guys I spoke to, I said, you know, how's church going? Really healthy church. He goes, I've had a thousand people leave. I was like, man, what happened? Just backlash got hard, people turning on people, this greater dysfunctionality, everyone, and I spoke to the next guy, I said, well, how's it going for you? He goes, well, had some staff leave and they now have created a podcast against us. Wow, okay. When it gets difficult, we actually now, the culture gets us to walk in the opposite direction, but growth is actually discovered in difficulty. Second thing, what this story tells us is Moses, just think about this. How do you see, and you've all watched enough documentaries or seen a snake catcher. What do snake catchers do? They catch it by the head. They pick it up by the head and, well, sometimes they hold it like this, but I'll just go with the head for this moment. And they pick it just behind the head so that the snake doesn't bite them. What's Moses being invited to do? He's actually meaning to pick it up at the bottom so that this thing can swing round and just hit him. And what this tells us is growth happens in vulnerability. God is inviting Moses not just to do a difficult thing, but a vulnerable thing. Not just do a difficult thing, but a vulnerable thing. And see, growth also comes in moments of vulnerability. And being vulnerable is hard. We fear danger and loss. In what I talked about last week, in a society of the stage where we feel like we've got to live up to a particular performance, being vulnerable is hard. And I'm not talking here about some of the sort of just spilling of your guts, intimacy stuff beyond the boundaries that we see so much of in our culture where almost people make a performance of their difficulties. I'm talking about vulnerability where you place yourself in a situation where you may be seen as you really are in your beautifulness, but maybe you'll see ugliness. But when we're in those moments of vulnerability, we're reminded by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 to 10, where says, God says to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We found in huddles, there's a dynamic that often happens where a group has been meeting for a year, sometimes two years, and then something comes out about one of the persons and they say this, and we're like, did you tell your huddle? Like, no. It's like, you met to share what's going on in spiritual life and you kept this from other people. And there's a sense that, that discipleship is based on a form of vulnerability. What I'm not saying here is just get up and, and testify to everyone in your room of the deepest, darkest things at that moment that you're still working. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is there's spaces where we're invited into to have a sense of 
vulnerability because growth happens in those spaces of vulnerability. Now, because our culture is set up to not be vulnerable, to not step into the difficult, this means that in our platform society, we can miss out on this deep growth. We can miss out on God's best and his plan to turn us into pillars. Why? Because we choose pleasure or ease over obedience. As the pillars are built in a platform society by obeying God and walking with him when things are difficult. Adam and Eve let the snake have its way. They succumbed to its lie by choosing their own path. However, with God, what this story of, of Moses and the staff and the snake says, that in an obedience, the serpent can turn back into a staff. Right, just to land this plane, what's the symbolism of the staff? Number one, the staff is a character going forward in this story. The staff is symbolic of spiritual authority. It is prominent through the story of Exodus. It's almost a character in the story, which is weird. Read Exodus and just imagine the staff as a character. Just have a little, hello. Um, <laughs> number one, Moses takes his staff to Egypt as a sign of authority in Exodus 4. He turns water into blood using his staff in Exodus 7. He brings forth frogs with his staff in Exodus 7 as well. He initiates the gnats or the lice with his staff in Exodus 8. He summons a swarm of flies with his staff in Exodus 8. He calls down hail and fire using his staff in Exodus 9. He brings forth the locust swarm with his staff in Exodus 10. He parts the Red Sea by raising his staff in Exodus 14. He strikes a rock bringing forth water in Exodus 17. And he holds up his staff during his battle for victory in Exodus 17. Why so prominent? It's a shepherd's staff. We saw last week that Moses was this shepherd out in the wilderness when God met him. And this is really key. Because a shepherd's staff means some really key things. One, it points to Moses' human identity, that God created humans to have dominion over chaos. The staff is to bring dominion, order over chaos, to have authority to that which opposes God. You've got that in you. Yeah, you may feel vulnerable, but when you step into your identity, when Moses is invited to see the snake, but then pick it up and pick up his, his, his identity, that also comes with authority of God. You may feel vulnerable and like, man, I hear that about difficulty, but I just, I feel sick at the thought of having that conversation. This is the moment the staff reminds you that actually you have authority in God. Secondly, it points forward to Jesus who's to come, the shepherd. It points where this story is going. Shepherds are a big theme in the scriptures. John 10, 14, 15, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. So it points back to the creation of humans and their identity in God. It points forward to Jesus who's to come, but also it points to what God is doing in Moses now. Mascalata writes this, Stripped of his previous position in Pharaoh's house. That's difficult. That's vulnerable. Moses is being prepared for his future role in God's plan for his people. Like David, who was called from his sheep to lead Israel, or Amos, who was called from his flocks to proclaim God's word to the northern tribes. Moses sets the pattern for the leader and the prophet of God's people through the life and work in, of a shepherd. The staff is symbolic of how God is shaping Moses for his purposes. God is shaping people in this room for his purposes. And if we ignore the difficult moments, if we keep up the walls, we're going to resist that growth. 
But God wants to shape us into his pillars. A staff is actually very similar to a pillar. It provides support and strength. It enables someone else to do something really important. And it's actually symbolic of the pillar that Moses is becoming. It's in the difficult times, in the hard places, in the moments of vulnerability. This is where God is growing us. And maybe he's been growing you, and you need to start to recognize that. Moitner writes this. Though Moses fears his call, God is not willing to let him go because he knows the heart and potential of the shepherd. Yahweh will patiently bear with Moses' weaknesses so his divine power may be known through his servant's transformation. A pillar is someone who, through their patience, or sorry, God's patience with them and the transformation that is happening with them, is that actually God's glory is being shown. And there are people in this room, I've seen that over years. In difficult moments, I've seen many of you push in. People being vulnerable. It would be easy to shut up. It also shows us that this is a process, this is a journey. It doesn't just happen in a moment. That's actually walking with him in the seasons of life. God's walking with us. And he's going to build pillars, not out of the smartest people, the most talented people, the most credentialed people. He builds pillars out of those willing to walk with him in difficult places and to pick up snake with the faith that it will turn into a staff. And that's what we need. I started with my jokey rogue relaying of what's happening. But I truly believe at this moment that God wants to see his church transformed. We need pillars to be built. And God has that purpose for you. Because there's an opportunity. Are we going to be ready? Let's stand. The band's going to come. And we're about to take communion. And what I'd love us to do as we take communion, which represents Jesus' blood given on the cross, his body sacrificed for us. What I would love us to do as we do this in remembrance of Jesus' work is actually maybe just think of some of those difficult things that perhaps you've been resisting and walking away from. Think perhaps of those places where you fall back and you don't want to be vulnerable with others or with God. Think of the things which have been turned into a snake. As you come forward in obedience with God in faith, take up that stuff, that destiny, that authority, that identity has for you. So let's move into this time. We just pray, Holy Spirit, be with us now. As we take of this meal, as we worship God, help us to pick up that stuff. Help us defeat the snake. God, we pray in Jesus' name, defeat the powers and principalities that are oppressing us, exploiting us, keeping us bound, stopping us from growing. And may we step into what you have for us in Jesus' name.